the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. That line came from the last speech delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., one day before he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. It recognized and confronted the injustice, prejudice, and alienation prevalent in the 1960s, the hope that change was possible, and the commitment to make that a reality. The change did not come easily, but come it did, and in no small part because of the participation of faith communities and the news media. Fifty years after Dr. King was shot and killed for his witness, there are almost daily reminders that injustice, prejudice, and alienation remain. In this episode of Challenge 2.0, we re-examine the influence of faith communities and the media during the turbulent era of the 60s. Activism, faith, and the media from the 1960s to today. And now I'd like to introduce my three panelists on this program today. Father William Tracy accepted an assignment in 1944 to move from his native Ireland to Seattle on what was called then a temporary basis. Sixty-eight years later, that temporary assignment surely must be the longest one on record. Father Bill accepted a request to participate in a television program called Challenge. Its purpose was to promote interfaith dialogue. Now that program is a foundation for this one that we're doing today. And the program was the beginning of the Tracy Levine Center, dedicated to promoting understanding, bridging divides, and building relationships. He has written numerous books, including Wild Branch on the Olive Tree, which he co-authored with his co-panelist on Challenge, Rabbi Raphael Levine. Rabbi Ted Falcon was ordained in 1968 and served as a congregational and then campus rabbi in Los Angeles until 1993. That's when he and his wife Ruth moved to Seattle to found Bet Olive Meditative Synagogue. He retired in 2009, of sorts, to allow more time for writing, teaching, counseling, and interfaith work. He holds a PhD in psychology. Rabbi Ted is one of the interfaith amigos, together with Imam Jamal Rahman and Pastor Don McKenzie. Together they have authored three books. Their first work is titled, Getting to the Heart of Interfaith, the eye-opening, hope-filled friendship of a pastor, a rabbi, and an imam. And our third guest panelist is Mike James, who had a celebrated 33-year career in radio and television journalism, most of it at King Television, as one of the two lead news anchors together with Gene Anderson. For those of us who worked with Mike, and I should honestly say that we had the joy of working together for many, many years, we knew him as a highly skilled, conscientious journalist with the skill of placing contemporary issues in a perspective a model of what other journalists strive to be. Mike's passion for and sense of community also led him to be a candidate for the U.S. Senate in 1994. So thank you so much for joining us today. Where I'd like to begin is just to get a sense, since we're focusing on the 60s and that era of activism and uh, unrest, is what was your strongest personal memory from that period? Any one of you that would wish to start? Well, it's hard. I don't, that was such a decade uh, that so much has been written about since. It's hard to pick just one thing. 
I, I, I'll just say for me, and maybe we'll continue this conversation, it was leaving uh, Spokane with friends to live in San Francisco for about 18 months. And it was, uh, to me, just, uh, opening up the world, opening up uh, a different way of approaching things. Uh, read a lot, went to the City Lights bookstore, Ferlinghetti. It was the fading of the beat era, just before the hippie and that late 60s movement. Uh, and it was a real opening for me. Rabbi Ted. <clears throat> uh, the memory that pops up in my mind is uh, November of 1963. I was in my first year of seminary at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati. We were up in the library, the whole class, taking an examination to see if we proficiencyed out of English, <clears throat> which was odd in an institution that teaches mostly Hebrew. Um, and in the middle of that, a student who had gone out to the lavatory came back to tell us that John Kennedy had been shot. Mm. I remember uh, how my handwriting changed in that moment. And I also remember how my consciousness changed, you know, and somehow that marks a shift from some notion that I lived in a safe world to a notion that the unsafety, the unpredictability, the violence could erupt at any unexpected moment. And I think that shaped a lot of my activities after that in civil rights and protesting the Vietnam War. Father Tracy. 1960, coming from Ireland, uh, I was surprised at the anti-Catholic spirit so many had when the question came up of the election of Kennedy as president. Then I began to study what happened, what's the root of this anti-Catholic feeling? Um, the Ku Klux Klan, of course, was one of the ones. And then I saw down here in Oregon, our neighbors, the legislator passed a law to forbid Catholic education because it was coming from a foreign power, the Catholic Church. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court in Oregon supported what the legislator did. And the attempt was made to bring it into Washington until they appealed to the Supreme Court. And a wonderful decision came down from the Supreme Court. The primary right to educate children belongs to the parents, not to the state. But anyhow, it revealed to me how there was this, the need for the program was on with Rabbi Levine at the time and a Protestant mm -hmm. pastor, trying to bring out better relations between Catholics and others. Yeah, I'd like to just echo, if I could for a moment, to the rabbi's memory of the assassination of, of JFK. Because what jumped into my mind when you mentioned that, we were leaving a political science class at uh, Washington State University. And it was just stunning. I think uh, all three of us, we went to, the, to the, uh, the hub to sit down and have some coffee or something, and we knew our world had changed. Mm -hmm. uh, it gave you the sense of safety or unsafety that you were talking about. You had later in that decade, uh, Martin Luther King, right. Bobby Kennedy, I mean, that's, the 60s were a tremendous period of turbulence and change and questioning, yes. I think. You alluded to that, but those events that each of you encountered 
early in the 60s. How did that change the direction of your life and how you saw your mission for ministry? <clears throat> I had the opportunity a few years later to serve as a student rabbi a congregation in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, that was after the long, hot summer of voter registration. Mm -hmm. My rabbi in Cleveland, Ohio, actually got beat up there, and his picture with blood streaming down his face was on the front of every newspaper in the country. And their rabbi fled in Hattiesburg, and nobody would go there. And I had the, what turned out to be the remarkably fortunate opportunity to be offered that as a student pulpit. One thing about it that was fortunate was they'd never had a student rabbi, so they actually taught me how to be a rabbi. They didn't expect a student. The other thing was that I'm from Ohio, northern Ohio. I had been somewhat active in civil rights movement, but I didn't know about the South. Mm. And that gave me an opportunity to venture into territory that was at once foreign mm -hmm. and also familiar, and allowed me a deepening of perspective about the depth of the issues of civil rights that goes far beyond the technicalities of the northern cities. Mm -hmm. And it was no accident that later on, the first places that real riots broke out were not in the south, they were in the north, <clears throat> where a lot of it was under wraps. I had the fortunate experience of being in Hattiesburg when the city council was integrated and when uh, consciousness was changing. But it was deep and it was important, you know, for me to have a sense of what that was about. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about personal experience, I would describe the 60s for me as kind of an awakening. You know, I'd always intended to be a pharmacist. That's what I was studying mm -hmm. at, at school. And I, I took that 18 months in San Francisco and it kind of opened this whole other world for me. And it, it kind of sparked the idea inside discovery is what life is about. I mean, and that's what journalism is really. Mm -hmm. It's discovery and writing about what you've, what you've discovered. And it's the reason that I had a 30, 35 year career in, in journalism, really that experience in San Francisco. And that moment of the Kennedy assassination uh, I changed out of pharmacy. I said, I want to be engaged in what's going on out there. I want to report it. I want to find out more things about how our, how our world uh, operates. And yeah, it was, I would just describe the 60s as, you know, we've all alluded to so much that was going on. But for me, it was, what is behind all this? And journalism is one way to ask those questions and talk to a wider audience about them. Father, how did that lead to a change for you? I, from my reading about the roots of the anti-Catholicism, anti I, I realized how important the program that I was on with a rabbi and a Protestant minister. And we were meeting in need, helping people. I got a letter from one lady and she said, if you people just talked about the weather, it would, which was years field, it would make me feel good. <laughs> so 
they had 300,000 people, according to some estimates, watching it. So I felt a immediate need for people at the present time. And the fact that they were watching it was encouragement to keep going. So that's, that was my experience from the thing, that the people, we spoke to each other, I spoke to them, they spoke mm -hmm. to me by their interest. Taking a step back then, perhaps, what do you feel was the foundation of all the unrest, the activism, the clashing in the 60s? Was it people wanting more places at the table or changing what the table was serving? I thought it was, to me, the awakening of a generation. You know, maybe a, a, a war that was unpopular sparks that. You begin asking all kinds of questions about how are these decisions made, who's behind them. Um, I, that's one foundation, but you also had in that same decade, you had the civil rights movement. I mean, you had Martin Luther King and a number of other people who were associated with that movement awakening the rest of the country to what 100 years of Jim Crow and semi-slavery after a civil war, we thought it ended that. Mm -hmm. And in the 60s in the United States of America, it was still visible. There was segregation in schools, there was separation in restaurants. Why, did we why on earth in the 60s in the United States of America did you need to have a lunch counter sit-in? Because what had been true about race relations in the 19th century was still true in our country. And that was, it was a period of awakening. Young people led a lot of it. And I think that's uh, the foundation of a lot of that unrest and protest that we look back on. I think it was also a time of expanding consciousness. Well, the same. There was something happening. Uh, part of it was an influx of an interest in meditation. Mm -hmm. There was also the hallucinogenic generation, mm -hmm. you know, which focused on in uh, San Francisco, but um, expanded out from there. People awakening to a consciousness that allowed us to see more clearly than ever before what the significant issues were. Yeah. I, I was born in the shadow of the Holocaust, you know, yeah. and when I grew up, there were areas in Cleveland, Ohio, where Jews could not live. Jews and African-Americans could not live in certain places. And it's still the case in the United States that there are more hate crimes against Jewish institutions mm -hmm. than against any other institutions. Um, but as consciousness opened to experience some sense of what actually brings us together as a single yeah. human family, we became more aware of the disjunct between what was awakening and what in fact was on display in yeah. the country and in our world. Yeah. Well, I agree with Robert. There was negative things in the 60s, but I'd like to go back to Mike and the changes he saw. <clears throat> there was excitement over the youngest president practically ever elected. Yeah. Young people were there. Um, he started the Peace Corps, thousands went to serve overseas yeah. as Americans. So this is part of the spirit, Mike. Yeah. But I think it was copied by his attorney general, who's his brother, in a quotation I'd like to share with you. He said, what we need is not division. What we need is not hatred, but love and compassion towards one another, and a feeling of justice towards those who suffer within our community, whether their color or whatever their color of faith. Let's dedicate ourselves 
what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to take the savageness out of man and make gentle the life of the world. That was part of the spirit I, I think of in the 60s. Yeah. What was on the table was the, the difference between aspiration mm -hmm. and reality on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, people began to address that in a significant way. So many of the basic movements, civil rights you've mentioned, uh, war on poverty, uh, unhappiness with the war in Vietnam, were often led or inspired by faith leaders and by the media. What I'd like to do is sort of split those in two and let's consider the issue of the involvement of faith with some of these key issues. Uh, did that period bring to light a difference between the foundational principles of faith and the way it was actually being carried out? I, re I think it certainly did. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think that's continuing. Mm -hmm. um, those traditions that focus more on their particular group and those traditions that are more prophetic in nature mm -hmm. uh, with concerns about a larger community. When I was ordained in 1968, I was supposed to go on for a doctorate program at University of Michigan in social psychology. But I got an offer to come to Los Angeles to what was in those days the most socially active uh, synagogue in that in that area and I chose to do that um, I'm grateful that I made that choice and I got to see the ways in which a, a more prophetic religious community could focus itself on issues of social concern mm -hmm. you know so the sermons I mean, it was much later that I started talking about God and spirituality, but in those days, that was not the issue. The issue was, do we pay taxes to a government that is supporting a war in Vietnam? What exactly do we do when we go out into the community and into the streets to support deepening civil rights? Mm -hmm. You know, this was part and parcel of what it meant to be Jewish, to be a Jewish leader, and to just absolutely refuse, you know, to be silent in the face of the injustices that were witnessed. Yeah. I'm remembering a name from the 60s. I, uh, in the mid-60s, I started doing radio news in Seattle and later moved to television. But I'm remembering a Reverend John Adams and First AME Church. And he was seen as a bit of a troublemaker at the start, but he was the one who called attention to the civil rights issues that we've alluded to briefly here, to the fact that uh, some neighborhoods in Seattle were off limits to African Americans. Mm -hmm. I'll give you just a quick personal note. I was trying to get a, a mortgage on a home, went to a bank, Mount Baker, and the banker said to us, this is an absolute quote, you and your good wife do not want to live in that neighborhood, mm. and refused us the mortgage. Mm. And we bought the house anyway with some private loans. But, but it was the Reverend John Adams, red-headed African-American, who really galvanized the community. Uh, it led to uh, the city council, for example, uh, changing the law for mm -hmm. open housing. Now that uh, you could not refuse mortgages. So the church uh, in Seattle, especially the black churches, were really strong uh, leaders in that period for change. And it led to change. I agree with Mike that uh, we had a local leader here for civil rights who just died recently, Pastor McKinney. He 
he brought Martin Luther King to speak here. Yeah. So there was a movement. Uh, Congress in 1964 passed the Civil Rights Act. So there was some movement, but there was the negative thing. And Tracy Levine, our, the center I'm with, is very much aware of that. And last year, we brought Jim Wallace to Seattle to speak on civil rights. It caused our attitude towards other people, especially other races, is America's original sin. Mm. And I agree with yeah. him. We yeah. need to work on that. Mm -hmm. And as you said, that challenge today continues in terms of what is preached or what is spoken of in different religious institutions versus what people do when they leave those services. Uh, let's turn to the role of the media. We hear a lot about the media uh, these days. Did the influence of the media back in the 60s and 70s reflect a conscious choice on the part of the news media? And Mike, I'll start with you. Uh, because of your background, or was it just an organic development of the influence of the media? Well, I think you had a couple of things going on. One, you had a lot of young people uh, who, who had been awakened themselves mm -hmm. uh, um, by <coughs> developments in the, in, in the world around them who were getting into the media. But you also had, uh, what we've talked about here, you had demonstrations against the war, mm -hmm. uh, you had the death of, of, of Kennedy, you had the civil rights movement, and all of those were things that journalists obviously want to report on. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of a two-way street. Uh, what happens is that reporters will go out to write about the civil rights demonstration, about MLK and all of the things that were going on in the South. Columns then will be written about that, apart from the news pages, but opinion columns. Those opinion columns may spark the thought in, in American citizens that they need to get involved or think about issues that they may not have considered before. So to me, it's always kind of a two-way street. Yes, the media can, uh, through reportage, through discovery of things that have not been spoken about often enough, uh, but also by writing about what is actually happening in the street or in churches or in universities, uh, wherever. Uh, it's not just one or the other, mm -hmm. Jeff. It's a bit of both. I, I remember a time when I felt a far deeper trust of the news media. It was a time before actually President Reagan changed the rules. Because it used to be that the news departments were segregated from the other departments of the broadcasting mm -hmm. networks. Mm -hmm. And they were free. They were not influenced by the sponsors. They were not influenced by the needs of the larger media organizations. And when that shifted, something radical happened that now is being, that has kind of blossomed into We'll give you the news you want to hear. We'll give mm -hmm. them the news mm -hmm. they want to hear. And it's like, I mean, talk about fake news. We're all fed the kind of news that we tune into. Uh, oftentimes, I encourage people to sit and for 15 minutes watch MSNBC and then switch to Fox News and then switch back and notice that they're the same. Mm -hmm. They're all yelling at, the, at who they perceive to be the enemy on the other side, and they're continually feeding this frenzy of polarization. Yeah. So but that's a whole other issue I think we'll probably get to uh, uh, later in the program. I, I remember one significant change, though, 
when I was working early in television, uh, King 5 News had a 48 share. Now that means about half the TV sets turned on were viewing uh, mm -hmm. King 5 News. Uh, now I'd say, I don't know, uh, some of you who have worked in it more recently will tell me, but I think, I think if an 8, 10, 12, 13 might be a decent mm -hmm. share. And the, the, the impact there was the cable impact. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, instead of four choices on your television set, mm -hmm. you had 100, and now it's close to 500 different kinds of choices to watch, and it absolutely balkanized the viewing. Mm -hmm. And so instead of reporters covering City Hall on a beat, and doing the kinds of things that journalism had always done, bringing yourself close to, to lawmakers and the like, or being out in neighborhoods, we started to rely on focus groups. Yeah. Oh, what do people really want to see? And pretty soon you did not have beat coverage anymore. And it, it utterly changed. I know in the King 5 newsroom, it utterly changed the way we approached uh, the news. Uh, there was a fair amount of tension about that, but uh, it was a significant change. I agree with it. I'm happy to be on this program with Mike because he reported the news good. You're one of my favorite reporters, Mike. Oh, thank you. But uh, recently I purchased a book called Factfulness yes, by Hans Rosalind. I purchased it because in a review, Bill Gates said it was the best book he ever read. And in it, he discusses to the press the tendency to divide the world into two parts, the good and the bad. And here's a quotation of that book. He said, uh, journalists know this, they prefer stories about billionaires and extreme poverty than the vast majority of people doing their ordinary lives. 75% of people are in that category, but there is a tendency in the press to pick out the extreme in one order or the other. Mm. So, uh, Mike, you're, you're, you did the right job on, on King. <laughs> I think that also is a demonstration of what human consciousness is drawn to, yeah. you know, because yeah. the media mm -hmm. feeds us. As you say, there's so much more that we could go into on this, and we are, but we're going to transfer next, in the next episode, from the 1960s and 70s to what that says to us today. So thank you all. Don't go very far, because we're going to set up for the next episode. <laughs> and thank you all for joining us for this episode of Challenge 2.0. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Puccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.